most anxiety is anticipatory, what's going to happen in the future. In fact, if you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you're depressed, you're in the past. And when you're in a state of love, when you're lined up with love, you're in the present. And you can't feel anything else but love when you're in the present if you're consciously making yourself aware of being in that place. Hey, podcast, Drew Prode here, your host. Today's episode, we have somebody that we're bringing back who was a hit in our top five episodes from all time, Jennifer Kulari, the founder of the Connected Parenting Movement and Approach. She's on the podcast today to talk about all things anxiety. Why is there an epidemic of anxiety amongst children? And most importantly, what can we do about it? So I recorded this podcast about two months ago, so it was pre-quarantine, but it could not be more relevant today for our guest, not for our guest, for our audience. It could be not more relevant to our audience more so than today with everything that's going on with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. How do we help kids who have big feelings process this, work through this, explain the situation, and manage and address their anxieties that they're working through? This is a must-listen to for every parent that's out there. Uh, Even if you're not a parent and you want to have kids one day or you want to work better with your own anxieties, this podcast is going to be fantastic. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, functional medicine, and mindset, all with the goal of helping you understand how your brain is not broken. I'm your host, Drew Prode, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live more. This week's guest is Jennifer Kalari, who is a past expert on the Broken Brain Podcast. That was great Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer is a child and family therapist and one of the nation's leading parenting experts. She is the founder of Connected Parenting and the author of Connected Parenting, How to Raise a Great Kid and You're Ruining My Life, but not really, Surviving the Teenage Years with Connected Parenting. Jennifer is a frequent guest on Canada's AM. Shout out to Toronto, where you yes, originally come yes, from. Yes, that's right. CBC, Breakfast Television, CTV News Channels, and Global's The Morning Show. Her advice can be found in many Canadian and U.S. magazines, such as Today's Parent, Red Book, Parent Magazine, and Canadian Family. She's also on the Health Advisory Board for Chatelaine Magazine, Her entertaining workshops and insightful strategies shared with warmth and humor make her a highly sought-after speaker and podcaster (laughs) with schools, corporations, and agencies throughout North America. Jennifer has been helping children, teens, and families get connected for over 20 years now. Jennifer, welcome back to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you so much. We're here to talk about anxiety. Yes. But before we do, you were on the podcast previously how did the Broken Brain audience treat you? What was the response It like? was wonderful. I'm still getting emails. I'm still getting Instagram messages. People really, I think it really resonated with people. Um, I had lots of moms, especially, that said, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was up all night. And then I was listening to this podcast. It soothed me. It made me feel so much better. I feel like I'm not alone. It's so hard to parent. And it's so hard to be an anxious parent. Um, so pe- I think it really resonated with people. It was beautiful. I'm still getting responses. There's a dear friend of mine who, uh, she's also my friend, but she's married to a really close friend of mine too. And one day I went over to uh, chat with her just a couple weeks after we recorded our podcast. And she was like, I listened to your interview with Jennifer and I cried because I felt compassion for my child for the moments that I felt frustrated mm-hmm. at them. 
and not putting myself in their shoes, but I also felt compassion for me for not yes. like knowing better, which is obviously the lasting message of that yes. podcast that's yeah. there. Yeah. And um, I just thought that was really beautiful. That's so really if cool. you haven't listened to that, you don't need to listen to that yet to listen to this. That's you can right. go always go back to it and we'll link up in the show notes. So let's jump in today's topic. I'm going to read a couple stats that I brought up before our interview. So the National Survey of Children's Health uh, data has shared with us that there's been an increase in anxiety between 2007 up to 2012, which I think was the last time that they had published, mm-hmm. or that they had looked at those findings of a 20% increase in anxiety. And at the same time too, when people think like, oh, well, it's just anxiety and all other diseases are getting worse. Depression was only 0.2%. And this is for ages six to 17. So young, uh, young kids all the way down to tweens and teens, early teens. Um, there was a big jump between uh, in 2013, it increased from five, uh, 5.4%. And from 2011 to 2012, there was an increase for 8.4%, all to highlight the fact that anxiety rates are growing and it's documented. What's going on that parents find themselves today working and raising kids that are in a more highly anxious state? So there's a lot going on. And I think we're all more anxious. People in general are more anxious. So there's a number of different reasons to that. First of all, we live in a very fear-based society, right? So you're watching the news or you're watching television. Find out what you know what you what you had for dinner. It's you know could kill you at six o'clock. Tune in and find out. Like if it's leads, leads. <laughs> right? So there's a lot of that. Um, kids in general are seeing. They have more access to this information. It's everywhere. Things are playing over and over again. They come to school. They they they've heard everything that's happening on the news. So there's we're sort of saturated with fear-based messages. Uh, parents believe that the world is a much scarier place. Kids don't play outside anymore alone. Like there's things have really changed, but statistically it's actually not that much more of a dangerous place. I don't think it's more dangerous at all. In fact, it's gotten better. It has. Violent crime is down. Yep. Yep. Uh, diseases are down overall. Yep. You know, Peter Diamantes has a great talk about why the why it's like, I don't remember the exact title of it, but we'll link it up in the show notes. It's a YouTube video just about how we think the world is getting worse because that's what we see that's there in the news. Yep. But by every measure, when we look out there, it's actually a better, safer, more happier place. Than Absolutely. And if you think about your own life, I mean, we've all had certain things happen to us and, and some people might have had more traumatic things than others. But if you look at your life, the, the scary things, the bad things have actually been blips. Most of it's for most of us, has been wonderful if we're lucky enough to live in a safe place, in a safe country, and have good family around us. For, we, you don't walk around seeing terrible things happening all the time. It's actually quite rare. But you wouldn't know that based on the news, and you wouldn't know that based on the conversations that people have with each other. And can I interrupt you for one second? Because there are other factors that are there where, for instance, you know, some of the data and the awareness around sexual violence is becoming a lot more talked about and known. Mm-hmm. And during, especially during the beginning of the Me Too movement, so many people, especially a lot of men that were out there, didn't realize how many people, even though men go through sexual violence too, sure. lone, largely it's, uh, it happens to, unfortunately, women or any human being, unfortunately, but for women. And a lot of more people are talking about how they experienced some sort of sexual violence when they were younger. So to push back a little bit. Is it also coming from a place of people having gone through bad experiences and not wanting their kids to experience that now? So here, here's what's really interesting. We, and part of this, when, when we're talking about kids, it really comes down to how differently we parent now. So 25, 30 years ago, it was a parent-centered model. 
kids were seen and not heard. They went to a restaurant. They sat there nicely. They didn't get a bucket of toys. You were expected to say hello and goodbye to adults. There was this sense that adults were in control. Adult, there was this hierarchy. Um, and there was this sense of community. So you would go shopping and you, especially when I was a kid, you'd go to the grocery store and you'd know people in the store. You'd go to the post office and they'd be like, oh, hi, how's your grandmother? And there's this sense of community. And I think now people go to giant stores and they've lost this sense of adults being um, all connected to each other and knowing them. So that's part of it. They've grown up watching shows where adults are ridiculous, silly people who don't know anything. So a lot of the shows that kids watch now, the adults are just silly and the kids have all the answers and the kids know how to figure everything out. Certainly when I was a kid, shows were much more, you know, that there was a lesson and it was the the dad or the mom at the end of the grandparent that had a really nice lesson for the kids. And there was a sense of hierarchy. And that hierarchy is really important because it has to do with the brain. So, and I said this in, in the last podcast, you're not actually a parent. You're a substitute frontal lobe. That's your job. So it takes 25 years to grow a frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that regulates, organizes, prioritizes, motivates, takes perspective. Um, and that, that's higher order thinking. That takes a really long time to grow that part of our brain. And so parents are the substitute for that, which is why it's exhausting to be a parent, right? You're always motivating, organizing, prioritizing. So um, because there's been this idea in the last 25 or 30 years that kids have too much power, they have too much control, they don't have to listen to adults necessarily, um, and this is sort of a permeated message, I think it's caused some real problems around anxiety. Is, is also part of that when you were young, and also when I was young too, your parents would know the people in the store because there was a sense of like, you know, people didn't move around as much. Yep. There wasn't as much of shift in the community or that sort of thing. Now, depending on where people live, that may still be the case, but largely people are moving more. They're not living as close to home. So there's also the sense of we actually don't know who is the register, the, the person that's running yeah. the grocery store or the yeah. cash register or whatever. There's a transition from small businesses to box stores. So yep. is part of that too just that just we're living differently we're living, as families. Yes, we are. I mean, think, think about even childhood right now. Um, when I was a kid, you played outside. Your parents said goodbye, and you ran outside, and you played with the neighborhood kids, young, old, and you learned a lot of stuff through play. Children learn through play. You learn how to be heard. You learn when to be quiet. You learn all kinds of things. And so kids aren't outside playing anymore, not, not in very many neighborhoods. They're inside on screens, first of all. Or they're in settings or programs where adults are organizing the kids. So those moments where they're actually figuring things out on their own and playing and developing that independence has gone down. And play is actually a really, really important way for kids to gain, um, to, well, to help them with emotional regulation for sure, but also to gain independence and feel really good about themselves. Kids don't really walk to school anymore. I mean, my daughter, my youngest is 16 now, and I remember having her walk to school in grade three, and I'm literally standing on the end of the driveway, and the school's like 20 houses away, and I got three phone calls from parents. Did you mean to let your daughter walk to school? How could you do that? Now my child wants to walk to school, but Olivia felt amazing having done that. There was a crossing guard. Like, she really enjoyed that feeling and that independence. So I think there's a number of factors that are really making kids feel like the world is a scary place. They're, they're not out there alone very much. They don't have a lot of experiences without adults with them. And that's a huge issue. And parents are afraid. So anxiety is contagious. So we're all afraid. And, and parents in general, the parental anxiety is a real thing. It really is. Let's start off with that. Because the question that we kicked off the podcast with, which is why is there increasing rates of anxiety? And a lot of the studies that are out there too, and surveys show that anxiety rates, even amongst 
let's keep on going up that list. Yeah, all of millennials us. Millennials is like one of the highest. Yep. Right. I'm a millennial. I'm like the, on the cusp of that. Uh, but anxiety in the workplace is up, and anxiety amongst parents is up. Mm-hmm. So I guess in one sense, it's like, well, if kids are more anxious, is it any surprise because everybody around them is anxious too? You're right. You're right. And that those statistics that you gave, what was the last year? 2012, 2011. 2012 with the 20 percent jump that was. So I, I I am pretty sure. And I'm sure we could find studies that prove this. That's that's when the tipping point happened with cell phones, with smartphones, actually, where it was around 50% of people, and certainly teenagers, had a smartphone. So they're now on Instagram and Snapchat, and every five seconds something's dinging and pinging, and you have that dopamine hit constantly in the brain. Um, it's made a huge difference. So I, I think there's been a huge increase in anxiety because... Of cell phone use. It's not going anywhere. We have to figure out how to help kids manage it. But I, I certainly see it with teenagers. They, they can't be without their phones. And if it's not pinging, if someone hasn't answered them right away, they're panicking. And if you kind of think about, when, so when I was a kid, if you, had a, if you had an argument with somebody at school, you'd stomp all the way to the bus stop, right, thinking about it. And then you'd think about it while you're at the bus stop. And then you're on the bus thinking about it. And then, and then you get home and you get to your room and you want to call your friend, but your sister's on the phone. So you got to wait another hour. And by the time you actually talk to the person that you've had the argument with, your limbic system has cooled down. You've got some perspective back. You have some time to think and really reflect on what's happened. And now when kids and teenagers are having arguments and fights by phone, it is in absolute lightning speed. Like they are answering themselves so quickly. And if somebody doesn't answer back, they're freaking out there. It is a, it's, it's really, I think a huge contributor to why anxiety is a huge problem. And we're all on our smartphones. So we really have to think about that. And we can talk about some practical things we can do blackout times and modeling for our kids around how dependent we are on these devices. And it's going to get worse, not better. So sometimes I wonder also too, so kids, the anxiety rates are up, but like adults as we were talking about before they're seeing their own increase anxiety is just growing up overall mm-hmm. so even some of these things that we're talking about that are for kids it's kind of like for everybody it's for everybody yeah and so you know for a lot of adults who are especially if you're above the 18 or your kids off to college or yeah. or like even people who have parents that are adults themselves they have older parents yep it's not like they can do blackout times or other things <laughs> like that. True. But I think that's probably also where the rise in meditation and other yes. things come which, from. Which we all helps. really don't know how to self-regulate. Which is huge. It's an important skill. And we, you're right. Most of us don't know how to do that. Um, and we have our emotions driving us and running our lives instead of us running our emotions. And that's, um, that's a really important skill. It's an important skill to teach your kids, but it's an important skill to have yourselves. So one of the things that's really important to understand is anxiety is not a bad thing. Anxiety gets such a bad rap. Oh, anxiety is terrible. It's bad to have anxiety. You need anxiety. Anxiety is actually really important. If you don't have some anxiety, you're going to, you know, pull out the cottage cheese from your fridge and like, ah, it's a month old. Ah, I'll just scrape the green off. I'll eat it. You're going to go to work late. You're going to tell your boss to shut up. Like you're, you're, you have to, you're going to cross the street and go, ah, the cars will wait. Like you have to have some anxiety so that you actually can stay safe and function. You just don't want to have so much anxiety that you're paralyzed or you're miserable. And for people who, and, and a lot of us can relate to this, when you are anxious, it's the most miserable feeling. It's, it's this gut-wrenching pit in your stomach. It, it, it's the heaviest, most awful feeling. Your heart is racing. You want to jump out of your skin. It's a very, very unpleasant emotion when it's out of control. And anxiety in general, high levels of anxiety like that are meant if you're in danger, right? So I sort of look at it this way. There's, there's two kinds of anxiety. There's useful anxiety. That bookshelf is going to fall on me. I'm not going to stand there and meditate. 
I'm going to get out of the way, right? I'm going to jump out of the way. Um, useless anxiety is I just did a presentation and I think it went badly, or I just wrote an exam and I'm not sure I did well, and I'm ruminating about it all night when I can't do anything about it because it's already done. That would be useless anxiety. And so really understanding the function of anxiety, that it's not a bad thing, and that when you learn how to control it, your brain and your body is an instrument. And when you learn how to control that instrument, um, those, you know, happiness and good feelings and just loving being in your own skin is possible. But when, but anxiety is a bit of a beast. So when you feed it, and we'll talk about that in a second, what it means to feed anxiety, but the more you give into it, the more wins it gets, the more space it takes up, the more of a beast it becomes, which is why it's important to understand how regulation fits into that, but also in terms of parenting, the things that you can do and not do for your kids to make anxiety worse or better. I want to go back to the definition of anxiety because mm -hmm. it seems like anxiety is being used to be talked about a lot of different things that are being lumped together. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's, there's where, not that depression isn't on a spectrum too, but depression is, feels like it's a little bit more defined and the way that it's approached is a little bit more defined. Mm -hmm. Anxiety feels like it's kind of like lumping a, more a nebulous. lot of things. It's a little bit yeah. more nebulous. Mm -hmm. And everything kind of gets kind of a little bit tossed into it. So when yes. you think of anxiety from your practice mm -hmm. and working with families and the courses that you put out there, how do you actually think that this child, in the case of children, but even adult too, is actually dealing with anxiety? So when you see anybody, but particularly a child, not enjoying their life the way they should, not going to activities, not doing things that they should be doing, and really letting the anxiety define what their life looks like, then it's an issue, right? And whether it's clinical anxiety or not, um, if, if the anxiety is running the show, it'll keep running the show. And it tends to get worse, not better, until you can find some tools to really calm that anxiety down. So when I work with kids, the way that I explain it is, because I, I don't want kids to be afraid of their anxiety because you need it. It's a continuum. You just don't want to have too much, right? And if you don't have enough, that's not great either. So I kind of describe it. sometimes you see it with kids, especially that they're anxious about getting anxious. Yes. And I mean, adults can yes, have this too. Of course, you can start being panicked about getting a panic attack or being afraid of your own anxiety. And that's a real thing. So when I talk to kids about it, but I want adults to think about it this too. Think about it as like the guard dog for your, for your brain, okay? For your it, it, anxiety is the internal guard dog. So you go to this pet store and you're like, I'm going to buy a guard dog. This is going to be great. And it's a think of it as a big I don't know, Saint Bernard, some you know big dog that just loves you, loves you. Your anxiety actually is self-preservatory. It doesn't hate you. It doesn't ruin want to ruin your life. It loves you. And every time it has a win, it thinks, oh, she's still here. I'm awesome. I'm going to do a little bit more next time just to make sure we're good, right? That's how anxiety works. It just keeps creating, it keeps taking space. So the anxiety, so let's say the dog is like an, you know, is the metaphor for the anxiety. And at first the dog's just barking outside the window. Oh, the people kept walking. I'm good. This is great. My person's still here. I'm doing a great job. And then the dog says, well, I think I'm going to bark at everybody outside, not just the scary looking people. I'm going to bark at everybody. And then the dog's like, well, you know, this is working. My person's still here. This has got to be because I'm doing such a fantastic job. So now I'm going to bark at people inside the house too because, you know, people are suspect. So I'm just going to bark at everyone that comes near my person. And then eventually the dog's like, you know what? I'm just going to sit on her chest. I'm going to sit on her chest. I'm going to lick her face and she's going to be so safe. She's going to be great. And she'll probably be safe because there's a 100-pound dog on her chest, but she also has no life. She can't get up and she can't do anything. And that's, that's, that to me is a really good example of what anxiety is. It's not this nasty thing that wants to ruin your life. It thinks it's helping you. And it's waiting for you to be the boss. 
And when you start to understand that, which is emotional regulation, you'll start to see that your anxiety can work for you instead of against you. And you're controlling your emotions and your anxiety instead of your anxiety controlling you. So anxiety stats are showing that it can happen at earlier and earlier ages than we even used to think of kids getting yeah. anxious at like three, four, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And knowing that like for the most part, kids are born whole and complete. You know, they're ready there. So at that young of an age, there has to be something that they're learning around from their environment. So besides just being around an incredibly anxious parent who doesn't know how to self-regulate themselves, what are other things that well-meaning parents might be doing for a young child that starts to begin to build those early building blocks of anxiety is a tool to help you deal with a situation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because it feeds into a lot of different things with parenting. Um, We don't like to see our children sad. We don't like to see our children I think that's, can can we pause on that? Yes. Let's just talk about that for a second. You know, my business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman, was just today on Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast. Yep. If anybody knows Gary Vaynerchuk, he's really big on talking about parenting because he feels that so many of the things that come later on in life start when when we're kids. And he rails on this idea of why are we giving kids eighth place trophies it's okay to know that you wanted something and that you lost it something like we don't have to make every situation okay for every kid all the time because then your kid thinks that they're great at everything and it's okay that they're not yeah and it's important that they know that so it's it's very interesting because i think that's a huge piece of it that parents really worry about their children being sad they worry about their children not winning i mean when i was a kid i used to love musical chairs Do, do you remember that game Totally. Are, are, are you, did you have to go to therapy because of that game? No. No. You just knew. You didn't win sometimes and sometimes you did. And it was upsetting for a minute and then you got over it, which is a really important life skill to understand that things cannot go your way and then you can be okay. And so when parents hyper-parent or over-parent or hyper, it's sort of helicopter-parent, you're actually, the brain builds itself depending on the, the environment that it's in. And if you don't let your children have healthy adversity, fall down sometimes, not win sometimes, get left out sometimes, they're not going to build the, the, the neurological hardware that they need to handle trouble when it comes, because trouble always comes. You cannot keep your child from having disappointment, from being left out, from having struggles. It's impossible. And the more you try, the more anxious you become. And the more you bubble wrap your child, the less skills they have and the less neurological hardware they have to handle trouble when it comes. So I think I gave this example the last time, but it's the best one I can think of. If you have an eight-year-old and that parent has made sure they're invited to every party and called the teacher every time something got wrong and gave them something every time they were crying um, and they're sitting there eating their ice cream and their ice cream falls on the floor and they start screaming hysterically, guess what? That is the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their entire life and they are reacting accordingly right? So it's so important to help parents understand that you, it's healthy adversity is a gift. I'm not saying kick your kids out and it's Lord of the Flies. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are moments when it's okay for them to fail. It's okay for them to not, to not win and to develop the muscles to be able to handle that. That's true resilience. And that's actually true freedom when you think about it. There's a author named Seth Godin who writes a lot of different books. And uh, he was talking about stress and you can, I feel like you can also apply it to uh, anxiety too. Mm -hmm. Um, But he says it's like stress is simply one thing going in one direction and then another force going in another direction. And anxiety in a very similar sense is that there's an internal force that says this shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. And there's also an internal awareness that something's happening. And that tension is the anxiety that's in the middle. And Mm -hmm. so if you feel that, 
if you're a young kid, which I was upset a lot when I was a young kid, you know, I was upset yeah. a lot and you have to figure it because out. Because you were you learning to, to regulate, right? You're right? learning to regulate. You're trying to figure out what is actually worth being upset about. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I didn't win this thing, right? It's going one way. I should have won. Everything else in my life is going well. And that tension at that intersection of that tension and how strong it pulls is the anxiety. Yes. Yes. And if you let that control you and you don't make changes and adapt and learn and approach, and this is an important thing to teach your kids, to teach them to approach life like a student, right? And not a victim. Then you'll, then you'll end up having control over your environment no matter what happens. Because as a parent or as a human being, if we're trying to control all the circumstances all the time, you're going to exhaust yourself and you're going to become very, very anxious because that's not possible. What is possible is controlling your emotional response to whatever happens to you. That is possible. And that's what I mean when I say it's true freedom. And so parents have to model that and they have to help their kids with that. And they have to do that themselves, right? Being a parent is terrifying. It's wonderful. And we love our children, but... When you love someone that intensely, it is, it is an anxiety that is very difficult to describe because you're not only afraid for yourself, but you're afraid for your child, right? So, and because we're in such a fear-based society, it becomes this cortisol soup that everyone is living in. And, and actually, literally, when a child is in utero, cortisol, which is the stress hormone that causes anxiety, actually passes through the placenta. So it's... It's a thing, right? You know, in our last podcast and part of a lot of the writing that you do is talking about that, you know, your, your approach is called connected parenting mm-hmm. and connected parenting, uh, very similar to Buddhism is the middle path. Yes. On one path is the classic way that many people, uh, were parented, especially if you're above the age of probably 35, 40, depending on your parents, yep. parenting situation, um, top down model. Your parents were the boss, kids feared parents. Parents were in charge. You did what was told, and that was it. Yeah. Right? That's the classic model. Then on the other side of that, uh, complete other side, has been the sort of, and I don't mean to demean it in this way, but let's just use the word conscious parenting or like spiritual parenting or some version of like, these are all my needs that I didn't get met when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be like my parents there. So I'm going to go on the exact opposite side. Yeah. You overcompensate. You overcompensate. Yeah. Uh, that's there. And going back to your example of parents trying to prevent their kids from feeling pain, Mm -hmm. I think that the response today, and this is coming from somebody who's not a parent right Mm -hmm. now, I always add that to my podcast, Mm -hmm. I just try to add good questions and everything like that, or ask good questions. I love it. Um, Part of the response today of parents wanting to prevent their kid from pain is, you've shared before, is kind of like their own correction on how they feel that they were raised. Right. And I, th- I think that's what happens. There's, there's been this overcompensation. And the truth is there's, there's value in both of those things. That's why the balance point in the middle is so important. So in Connected Parenting, I teach you, of course, you have to be aware of your own issues and your own triggers and your own childhood issues. And that whole idea of being a conscious parent is beautiful and important. And I love it. But it doesn't help you very much if you're trying to get your kid out of the bath and they tell you to shut up, right? Or they're slapping you or hitting you. Then what? Right? So you have to be able to set those limits. You have to be a frontal lobe. That's your job. That is the brain function that you have to provide until your child has a frontal lobe of their own. And so when, when kids don't feel like they have that inhibition from their parents, they push back just like the midbrain does, right? So they get more upset. They get more unruly. They get more wild in the attempt to get the parent to actually set some limits so they can feel safe. And when the parents don't do that, 
um, and, and some of the more, um, the softer kind of parenting um, advice that's out there doesn't work. They're lost and they're frustrated and they feel horrible. And then they snap. Then they start yelling. And then because of all this beautiful spiritual teaching, now they hate themselves. What kind of a mother am I? I just screamed and yelled at my child. I shouldn't do that. I should know better. It's actually in some ways um, makes it so hard on on parents because they, they get so angry with themselves, right? But the truth is um, both of those models need to be brought together. And that's what connected parenting is. It really is that balance point in the middle. So in the connected parenting model, when families come to you or your team Mm -hmm. or they write in and they talk about, I have a kid who's, you know, one thing that I want to give a lot of credit to is that kids today, and my nephew is here in the audience here at our studio, Jamin. Hey, Jamin. He's going to get a chance to ask a question at the end of the podcast. So we'll have him jump in. But kids today, I think about my nephew, Jamin. They're so freaking smart. They are. Right? They, I think about what my nephew knows now compared to when I was there. Now, knowledge goes both ways. Sometimes you're so smart and you're aware of the fires in Australia. You're aware of how maybe tumultuous the yes. current administration is. Mm-hmm. You're aware of how people, how bad people have it who are undocumented mm-hmm. that are here. And there's so much pressure that you feel. Yeah. I don't remember being that smart when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, kids are there. They are definitely. They have more experiences. They're more knowledgeable. They're amazing. They're sassy. They're spicy. They're feisty. I mean, they're amazing, and they're the ones who are going to you know look after us and save us all. I think. But we have to learn how to parent them. Um, and when you use kind of um, when you're just using the limit setting and the t- sort of harder parenting strategies that maybe our parents used years ago, um, when you parent that way. It's, it's, it's an old-fashioned model. It doesn't work anymore. Kids will literally look at you and go, no, I'm not doing that. You're not the boss of me. You don't have to. And then we get so upset. So we're using sort of outdated models that don't work. Um, and then when it comes to kind of the, the softer parenting and the connection and the conscious parenting, which is absolutely beautiful, beautiful, you want to bring those two things together. And it's, you have to trust your kids. They're smart. They're feisty. They're stronger than you think. Right. So if you if you try to smooth out every single bump in the road for your kids, you're giving them a disadvantage. Right. You want them to have that neurological hardware so that they can roll with life and they can handle the things that are ultimately going to come. So the hardest part, I think, for parents is watching their kids suffer and suffering themselves. It's it's such an awful, painful feeling to be struggling and suffering with that pit in your stomach that is anxiety. And so many people have it. So many people are fighting it and, and dealing with it. So show us the middle path. In connected parenting, family comes to you, and this is where I was getting earlier, family comes to you and says, this is our situation. Mm-hmm. Our child is dealing with anxiety right now. How would you have them come in using the model mm-hmm. that you talk about? So the first thing I have families do is the connection first. So you're not going to come in right away with all of the limit setting. That that's just going to be experienced as pain. You're mean. You know, I hate you. Hate me. That's why you're doing this to me. So the connection is really first. So that's where you are meeting them where they're at, right? Before you're talking them out of how they're feeling. Before you are arguing with them why they're you know they're so lucky and they shouldn't be feeling this way. Um, you're really just meeting them where they are, which for us as parents is a really hard thing to do. That's a scary. 
thing to do. And some of the really smart, feisty kids today that can see all of the arguments for everything can actually drop down into what I call a touching the bottom moment where they're like, what's the point of anything? And my life is miserable and I hate my life and I'm never going to be happy. And as a parent, your own limbic system just starts panicking. You're like, oh my gosh, how are they going to be happy? What if they don't find balance in their lives? Oh my goodness. We start seeing their life flash before our eyes. They then look back at us and see the fear in our eyes, and then everybody's a giant mess, right? So part of it is finding this space where you trust your child enough. You know that it's like a wave, right? It'll crest and it will fall. It will crest and it will fall. And if you panic in every single moment, your child is looking to you. They're gauging their response based on yours. And if you're panicking, then they're going to think, oh my gosh, this is worse than I thought. And they're going to start panicking too. So the first part is just really connecting, but from this loving uh, place of perspective, right? I know you're going to be okay. I know you got this, but this you're having such a hard time. I get that this is so difficult for you. So the technique that I teach is actually the calm technique. So there's four things you're going to do. And the connection part is first, put your phone down, right? Really engage, be in that present moment with your child, no matter where they go, you have to dare to be there. And that's not easy to do. Take your agenda, which is how dare you talk to me that way? Or, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Do we need to do something serious here? Whatever your agenda is, park it for a moment. You get to bring it back. The next part is listening. So this is where you use your words. You summarize, you clarify, you paraphrase, and you wonder out loud. And so whatever they're saying to you, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm so scared that I won't, you know, I didn't get invited to this party and I'm afraid that no one's going to be my friend and I'm never going to have any friends. And so we immediately panic as a parent and think, oh my God, what if that's true? I got to start calling people. I gotta... Or we start talking them out of it. Honey, it's going to be okay. You know, your cousins can come over. What about so-and-so? He's a good friend. Why don't we call him? We move right into solution, trying to solve the problem. But we have to be brave enough to really just stay in that place with them and say, so you're just feeling like this party is it you didn't get invited to this party and you're having a hard time figuring out how it's ever going to get better from here and I know that sounds crazy it sounds like you're going to make the person more upset but you're not what's happening is they feel deeply understood they feel deeply listened to you've bravely gone where they are and you're still there and there's a look on your face which is I get that you're sad but I believe in you and I trust you and I know that that you're going to that you're going to come up from this like a trampoline it goes up and down um, and when you really deeply connect with your child in a moment like that, they don't stay there very long. Within two or three statements, you don't have to lie them down and do an hour-long therapy session. It's literally two or three statements, and then you'll see the shoulders will come back, the head will come up, and they'll, then they'll start asking you, well, what do you think I could do? Do you think my cousins could come over? Do you think I could have a party? They'll start to ask you what you should do. So I'll give you an example. My daughter Zoe, who's now 24, she had a best friend. And they were attached at the hip. They did everything together. They were never apart for years in, 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 the, in the sort of junior years in, in elementary school. And all of a sudden, her friend is moving to France. Celine, her name was. And within two weeks, her parents announced they're moving, and that was it. And so Zoe is hysterical. I'm never going to have another best friend. My life is over. All the other kids in my class are weird. I'm never going to be happy again. And in that moment, it's like a divorce. It's, it's a, she was grieving. I mean, everything she knew had fallen apart. And my mom, who was a, um, an elementary school teacher for a long time, and she's lovely, empathic, wonderful grandma, did what most of us would do. She started to talk Zoe out of her feelings. 
Well, you know, I, you could write Celine letters. I bet you guys could find out all kinds of neat things about each other when you write letters. And, and I bet maybe you could call her. And what about, what about Jackie? Jackie's a really good friend. Maybe you could start playing with Jackie. None of that matched where Zoe was. So she had only, there was only one direction for her to go. And that was to go up and become more intense. No, you don't because understand. Because already she's feeling like nobody's yes, understanding her. Absolutely. And nobody's connected to like what experience Grandma's not getting it. So I got to make grandma get it. So then she starts, no, this one's weird and it's never going to be the same. And the more she did that, the more my mother's trying to solve the problem, the more upset both of them are becoming. My mom is being upset because she spent a long time now trying to soothe this child and it's not working. And Zoe's getting very upset because grandma's not listening to me. She doesn't get it. So I came into the room. I'd, I'd actually been seeing clients in, in my home office and I, I came out and I certainly didn't give my mother a mirroring lesson or anything, but I did kind of have Zoe come aside and I, I, I went right deep into the place that she was. And I'm like, I can't believe this. Celine, she's your best friend. I know I'm never going to have any. You can't even imagine how you're going to have a relationship like that with anybody else. You guys do everything together. I went right there, right where she was. And I'm not kidding. And Zoe was hysterical. I would say it was three or four statements before she started saying, well, you know, do you think I could do this? Or do you think we could go to France? Like she, she was already moving into how can I soothe myself? How can I make myself feel better? So if we always jump in, and this isn't just as a parent with kids, this is with a friend, this is with your own parent, um, this is anybody who is suffering. When you jump in and you try to rescue and you try to talk them out of their feelings, it feels invalidating. Even though you feel like you are putting your you know, best effort out there to help that person in that situation, as they're trying to convince you how bad it is because you are not getting how bad it is, guess what's happening? They're listening to themselves and they're thinking, oh, this is bad. So as they're talking the other person into how bad it is, they're becoming more upset and instead of less. And themselves up even more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as they ruminate and as they talk about it and as they focus on it, it's getting worse. So when you dare to be there, when you kind of touch the bottom with them, which is, and I think there was even a moment I said, Zoe, you can't even imagine what it's like to have, you probably you are thinking you're never, ever going to have another friend like that. that. No wonder you're so upset. That's called touching the bottom. That's the bottom. And as soon as we went there, Zoe started to rise. Now, I did not go, oh my gosh, what are you going to do? Celine, what if... I didn't get panicky with her. It wasn't about me experiencing that with her. That would terrify her, right? Then she'd be like, oh my God, it's worse than I thought. It's me going there with her from this loving space, from this loving place of knowing, I trust you. I believe in you. This is something you have to experience in this moment. And I'm brave enough to go with you. And you're going to get through this. And then after a few statements, Zoe started asking questions about what to do. And then I gave her that message of confidence. You know what? I know this seems impossible right now. And you can't imagine how you're going to get through this. But I believe in you. And I see in you as someone who's actually got some strength. And you're going to, but you can't say that too early. If you say that too early, and it's, sometimes it's this rhythm of like empathic failure. If you say it too early, they're like, no. And you'll, you'll know when you get it wrong because you'll get a reaction like that. And then you repair. Oh, you know what? You don't even want to hear that right now. That You don't even want to imagine having a new best friend. That's not what you want to hear right now. You just want to talk about Celine. And then back down we go and we're in rhythm again. right? Then, then we're in sync again. And I know this example was a while ago, but if you could picture yourself back in it, what's your body language look like? So I would say that it's it, it looks like, you know, I say when you get this technique right, you literally feel it in your heart and you do. 
when you are deeply engaged with another human being, when they're in a moment of suffering or sadness, which is so uncomfortable for us because we just want the person to feel better. In fact, some of the time we want them to feel better so we can feel better. <laughs> like, get me out of this, right? A lot of the time. <laughs> a lot of the time. And that will never work when that happens. I'll come back to that. I'll talk about love and fear in a second. But when you're having um, a moment like that, what actually happens is oxytocin is releasing. And oxytocin drops cortisol speeds up neuroplasticity. Um, it actually makes you smarter. It increases your, uh, it, it strengthens your immune system. It does all kinds of amazing things. But oxytocin also releases nitric oxide, which actually releases a molecule, a, a cardiovascular mo molecule that sends um, blood flow to the heart. So your heart actually expands and you have this moment of connection you literally feel it it is something really powerful that you feel um and you have to just kind of stay in that moment and when you're there you get what's called brain heart coherence and you are when you're think of it this way when you're in a conversation with someone and you're trying to convince them how bad it is and you're and sorry they're trying to convince you how bad it is and you're trying to convince them how bad it isn't that it's going to be it's going to be okay you're going to be fine your, the waves that you are interacting with are going to be conflicting, right? And, and it's, you're going to feel it. It's going to feel icky. It's going to feel off. It's not going to feel right. If you, if you think of your body like an instrument, it's not the same note. There's no resonance. But when the person is actually with you in that moment, they're not panicking with you. They're just with you, gently um, accompanying you in this moment. You're going to have convergence, and when you have that convergence, you're going to feel it. And you're going to have that brain-heart coherence where you just feel this warmth. Then what that does is that puts the person into an oxytocin-based moment instead of an adrenaline-based moment. And as soon as the oxytocin is flowing, the fight-or-flight mechanism or program goes offline and your frontal lobe comes back online. And now you can start to problem-solve. Now you can start to see the big picture. Now you can start to say, hey, remember a couple years ago you were really good friends with so-and-so and she moved and how do you feel now? Now's the time to help them take perspective. Now's the time to start to problem solve. And then you're going to have a very different kind of conversation. But you can't start there. You have to start with the connection. It's so key. It's all the basics. And yet when you are fully, like, it's all the basics, but nothing can make up for the fact of not being present there with that person yeah and yep. we can all feel it we can all be we've all been on the receiving end where we're going through something tough we're dealing with something and not just even as a kid even as an adult sure and then you can feel that the person in front of you is not with you and so you're just less likely to yeah. follow any kind of recommendation they have of course you're less likely to want to maybe go down the, any kind of path of inquiry that's there because mm -hmm. it just doesn't feel like this person is here with you in this yep. moment. They're not sharing in the human experience that you're going through yes. right now. So why yep. do I want to pay attention? Exactly. And that and that's that's a you know, you can feel very lonely when and and this is where parents this is why this is such a beautiful skill for parents, because when you're able to do this with your child, they will talk to you. They will tell you things. They will share things with you. Because if you start to get really upset while they're upset, they're gonna go well, okay, now I'm upsetting my mom. I can see in her eyes that she's really scared for me. So I'm upset and now she's upset and I can't handle us both being upset. So I'm just not going to talk to her at all. I'm just not going to tell her anything. So we, if we want people, not even our children, just people in general to share with us and to feel safe with us, we have to be able to go there. So I said a second ago, I wanted to talk about love and fear. So humans only have two emotions, only two, love and fear. Right? So when you are operating, when you are present with someone and you are lined up with love, you're going to have that experience I just described. 
When you're lined up with fear, you're going to have that conflict. It's going to feel off. It's like two notes that just don't go together. It's just not going to work. So I'll give you an example. I had a, I had a client of mine, um, couple of months ago whose daughter came home from university and she loves her daughter so much and they're really very close but her daughter had come home from university and was look you know with a crazy bun on her head and she looked exhausted and you know she just finished exams and she came down the stairs the first morning she got home she looked like you know she's a wreck and her mom and so many of us do this approached her daughter from a place of fear oh my gosh look at you you look terrible there's bags under your eyes have you been sleeping you haven't been taking care of yourself and you know you had bronchitis and you need to be that sort of you know fearful approach which we all do because we think we're it's coming from a place of love but it's not in that moment it's coming from a place of fear and so her daughter responded with you know this is why i hate coming home and you're always yelling at me her daughter didn't experience that as a moment of care and love, her daughter experienced that as, as a, an attack, really. Um, and that was not the, the mother's intent at all. She loves her daughter. That all she wants is for her daughter to be happy. Um, and this client, actually, she's amazing. She realized what she'd done, and she went back and she did a repair. And she said, you know what? You had such a crazy few weeks. You, you must be so tired, and you hardly had any sleep, and you've been studying like crazy. And here I just attack you at the bottom of the stairs. Like, of course you're going to feel like not coming home if I do that. And then they embraced and had this beautiful hug and a cry, right? So that would be such a perfect example of when you line up with fear with anyone, just not, not just with your children, you're going to be off course. And it will just add to whatever that person is experiencing. When you line up with love, it's going to go so much better. You're going to have that. You're going to have that moment of beautiful coherence. You know, before we started recording, you had mentioned that your uh, daughter previously was in like a Waldorf school, mm-hmm. and I know that uh, a couple of my family members went to like Waldorf uh, early on. And then there's you know Montessori, and obviously they're different. But one of the big things that uh, some of these alternative schools are are big on is is also this idea of not good boying and good good girling mm-hmm. your child, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Instead of praising them, like, oh my gosh, you're such a good boy or you did just such a good job, yep. you know? Or you're such a good girl, you did such a good go- good job. It's recognizing them for their efforts that they put that's in. So, so important. That, that's the growth mindset. That's so important. The growth mindset. Yes, yes. Because recognizing your child for their efforts instead of what you determined to be a, d- a destination. Yep. Or asking them interesting questions is part of what always has them not looking for acceptance and appreciation from the outside versus the inside. hundred percent. And if kids are anxious and there's a chance that they can't do well in something, they're not gonna they're not gonna put themselves out there. They're not gonna take a risk unless they know they can do it perfectly well. Right? They're going to either do the bare minimum or they're going to drive themselves crazy and you'll have kids that are, you know, up all night and they're stressing about their grades and sometimes it's not even the parents putting that pressure on the child it's the child putting that pressure on themselves. So there's a couple of different things I want to talk about here. One is again when we come back to this idea of lining up with love. I love to have parents really help their child tune in to the the that sort of lining up with love within themselves, right? So if let's say they've done a project and they kind of like scribbled it out it wasn't great wasn't and you know they didn't put like a ton of effort into it and interestingly the brightest kids actually have a very weird relationship with effort so kind of more typical kids see effort as a good thing right something to be proud of this is awesome I'm a good student and they see effort as a sign of intelligence and strength super bright kids and particularly gifted kids see effort as a threat 
if I have to try hard, then I'm not as smart as I think I am. So I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to scribble something out. So if I don't do well, I can say, well, it's because I didn't try that hard. And if I did well, I'm intact. I'm good. So it really becomes this interesting idea about effort. Um, and every, you know, kids are different, just, you know, like we're all different. They have a different relationship with this. But um, that idea of having your child line up with with love in this situation, do you, how do you feel about that project? Like, did that make you feel good? When you look at this work, does this feel, do you feel proud when you look at this? Do you feel like this sense that you put your, your best into that work? And if, and they'll, they won't be able to do this right away. They won't be like, oh, I guess not. Sometimes they will, but sometimes they'll be like, no, it's fine. It's fine the way it is. And then you kind of talk to them about how to tune into that feeling. Same thing if they're gossiping or not being nice or, um, you know, doing anything that's not kind, right? It's, it's, if, you're, if you're lined up with fear and not love, there's going to be a yucky feeling in your stomach. You're going to feel a little gross. It, same thing when you gossip or you're jealous of somebody or it could even be if you're buying something. If you buy something, you know, that you love because of the craftsmanship, because it makes you happy, because you feel it, you just feel, you know, more love when you wear it or you own it, that's, that's great. But if you buy it because I want that person to think I'm amazing. I want that person to know I have it. Well, then you're lined, you're not lined up with love. You're lined up with fear. And that thing is never going to give you what you need it to give you. So having your children develop this incredible skill of tuning into that part of themselves, which is hugely important, um, I think is something that's, that's critical. And we also have to model that ourselves, right? So that would be a great way, along, along with just praising effort, is getting them to tune into that. So when they do something that isn't nice or they lie or they steal something and, and you kind of come at them and say, oh, you, that's not nice and you're going to get in trouble now, um, they're just going to become better liars, right? Or they're just going to drive that behavior downward. But if you're like, you know what? I know you're a good person and I've seen you with your puppy and I've seen you with your grandma and you have this strong sense of what's right or wrong. So I feel like some pieces of that story are missing. So when you're ready, I want to hear the rest of it. And just feel, pay attention, sweetie, to that feeling that you have in your tummy. If you got that icky feeling in there, that's never going to go away until you tell the truth or until you go and make it right. So you get them to tune into their those emotions, um, like that pit in your stomach, as a as a guidance system, right? Like an emotional GPS kind of. If you're feeling those things, it's because it's too far away from love. It, you're not lined up with the best version of yourself, which you know inside is the right thing to do. And children know this. You can teach them this. And it's a beautiful, beautiful way to have them line up and live their whole lives this way. But we have to model it. It really comes back to we have to model it and what kind of situation do we want to mm-hmm. create. Mm-hmm. How much does the way that our school systems are designed today play into the anxiety that kids are facing today? So it's interesting. Kids are definitely more stressed about doing well, and they're pressured at a very young age about getting into this college and that college. There's a lot of talk about this as kids Especially get older. Especially with like kids that are come from a more privileged situation, yes. and their parents yep. have some economic means. Yep. It does seem that there's a lot more awareness in terms of the future, mm-hmm. where like a lot of people my age when I was really young, and even older than me, were just kind of like twiddling their thumbs. We're a little more oblivious. Yeah. A little bit more oblivious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not that that's not even that I'm arguing for that. Yep. Just explaining. Yep. And laying out the 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 cards on the table. 
Um, so they're much more aware in terms of this leads to this and this does that. And if I don't do this, this doesn't turn into a Yeah. Job. And you can have kids, very young kids in tears thinking, I'm never going to get into the college I want now. And you're like, you're seven. What are you? What are you worried about this for? But it's so interesting because it comes back to the lining up with love and fear. If you're parenting your child, like, you have to do this. You have to get these grades. You have to perform this way. And that's the energy where it's coming from. That's a lineup with fear, which is going to make your child afraid versus let's learn about this. Let's get excited about what you're learning about. Why are you doing this project? What is the bigger picture here? Being limbically connected to what you're learning, we're losing that. And kids are getting exasperated with school. They're getting sick of school. They're, there's a lot of kids who don't even like school anymore. Not that, you know, a ton of kids ever loved it. But, um, and especially the brighter kids, they're, they're, they're having a really hard time, a really hard time. And I'm seeing a lot of kids having what, what I call a pre-life crisis, where sort of at 20, 21, they're crashing out. They're just falling apart because they've been tutored and pushed and come on and do this and let's redo this project and let's, let's get this done. That was for so long that A, they burn out and when it's time for them to do it on their own, they don't have the skills. They can't do it. So it's interesting. I remember, it's just a story about Zoe again, but when she was in third grade and she went to a, a school where all the parents were, you know, very intense. It was, it was one of those schools and it was time to do a little diorama, it was a little project. And she did this little diorama on beavers. And I believed that she should do it herself. I did not believe that I should help her. It's grade three project. She should be doing it on her, by herself. So she had this sad little shoebox and these sad little beavers that barely looked like beavers. And it looked like something that a grade three kid would do. And it was great. She got to the, to the night where all the kids were showing their projects. I'm telling you, those parents had hired out their team to make their kids dioramas. Okay, these things were not done by kids in grade three. And my daughter's face, she was devastated. She went and hid her project. She stood in front of it. She didn't want anyone looking at it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought she did a great job on her project. But she looked around at all these projects where the parents had helped and the parents had done it for them, worried for their kids that they've got to do well so they get a good grade. First of all, the teachers know. They're, they know when the parents have helped and when they haven't. And if you're working and, and doing that much work for your children, you will continue to do that. You will be doing it in third grade and eighth grade. And you'll be doing it when they're in high school. And guess what? You'll still be doing it in university. Do you want to hear something crazy? There are parents who actually pay for their kids to have essays written, to have uh, a little bug in their ear during exams and pay a tutor, I don't know how much an hour, to like whisper in their kid's ear the responses to the exam. Cheating is rampant in colleges and universities today. Why? Because the system is, is not working, I guess. I guess it's broken. But kids have, have had so much help and so much support and had so many people holding them up that now it's terrifying. So the time to let your kids fail and fall down and realize if you do your little project the night before and it's not great and you don't get a great mark, that's an important life lesson. You're going to rob your children of that if you stay up till two in the morning doing it with them. You have to love them enough to say, I love you enough for you to be mad at me. That project should have been started before. I tried to help you two nights ago, three nights ago, a week ago, whenever it is. It's now eight o'clock at night. I love you and I love myself and I'm out. Do what you can. And then if they get a terrible mark on it, you, they come home and they're crying. You mirror. It's a terrible feeling. You thought you'd be able to do it. It's a horrible feeling to get a mark like that. I totally get it. It's not a good feeling. Stay with them, mirror with them, and then say, okay, now what could, it, what could we do differently? What can we do next time? There, there is such, it's so important to be brave enough and to have enough confidence in your children to let them fall down sometimes, to let them fail. That's the time to have them learn. Not when the stakes are incredibly high. 
not when they're, you know, not going to get into university or college. This is where parenting is really hard, though. It is scary. This is not easy. None of what I'm sa- is saying is easy. And it's even harder when, let's say, in a traditional relationship, there's a dad and a mom, mm-hmm. or in any relationship, when parents are not on the same page. Yes, which happens and, often. And what, how do you handle that? So it's, it, listen, it's kind of a normal thing that happens. You put, everything polarizes, right? So you have one parent who's, oh my gosh, it's not her fault. Let's do it. Let's help her. I'm going to help you. I'm going to stay up till two. I'll write it for you. We'll get it done. Or, or you know, she's hungry. She's tired. It's not her fault. And then you have the other parent who's like, this is ridiculous. This kid's out of control. We got to set some limits in this house. It, I'm... Like the dad, by the way. <laughs> it, it often is, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the reverse. But what happens is, and this is what I say to parents, like I'll settle the argument right now. You're both right. You're both right. You have to do both of those things. You have to start with compassion. You have to start with understanding. You have to create that soft, gentle space where your child can look at their own behavior and learn. Um, You have to create that emotional safety for your child to take a risk. But you also have to be a good frontal lobe. You have to be able to set those limits. You have to let your children figure out... um, where those boundaries are, where those, and make those mistakes so they can make the necessary adjustments in life. That that together is really good parenting. So what I say to parents is, um, know that 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 you're both right first of all. And this is why I love connected parenting because it forces both parents into that balance. You have to start with mirroring. You have to start with three or four beautiful mirroring statements. That calm technique without your agenda. Then you get the oxytocin flowing. Now you're having an oxytocin-based discussion instead of an adrenaline-based discussion, which means your child is not going into fight or flight. You're actually open and having a dialogue. And then you have to love them enough to say, I love you enough for you to be mad at me, but this has to get done, or that phone is going away for 24 hours, or you're going to bed early, or or you're not going to that party. Whatever it is, um, we show love through limits too, and children know that. Kids will tell you. Ask a little kid when they see a a kid freaking out and the parent saying, fine, fine, here you go. That child, you look at that child and go, oh, that mom should not have done that. That's a bad idea. Even the child themselves knows, right? They know, kids know. They're clever. And part of that cleverness is that how important is that consistency across the board between both parents? Yeah. So here's the thing. Both parents, you, they don't have to parent exactly the same. That, that's not real either. That's not the real world either. You're going to have different kinds of teachers, different kinds of bosses. You're going to have to learn how to move through all kinds of different relationships. Humans are messy. They really are. So if mom and dad aren't exactly the same, that's fine. Um, but, but some of the basic things around safety, around some of the major rules in the house need to be the same. Same thing if your child goes to your grand, their grandparents' house and, you know, they put their foot on the coffee table and grandma screams at them. You can't say, well, we don't scream at our kids. You know, that's not the way we handle things. No, that, that's parenting from fear. Fer- parenting from love is, hey, we're going to grandma's. You know, she has a certain way that she likes her house. And if you put your feet on her coffee table, she is going to scream at you and I can't help you. Like, if you're, I'm just telling you right now, that's what's going to happen. And then that happens and, oh, grandma's mean. You can mirror, I know, and you forgot and whatever, you know, whatever the mirroring statement is. And then you say, but I believe in you. You're strong enough. You can handle this. And you'll just have to remember that next time. When you parent like, ooh, 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 all the time. Um, you're going to send a message to your children that the world is more scary than it actually is and that they don't have the internal strength and the internal ability to actually handle stuff like that. Because 10 minutes later, they're fine. It's not the end of the world if grandma yells at you. It's okay. Because sometimes in that conscious parenting world, again, you're using it as a general thing. As a general thing, yeah, yes. Uh, there's this thing of like, 
well, I don't even know if we want to go to this family member's house because they do things completely differently than we do. Yeah. And is that going to mess us up? Is it going to send con- inconsistent messages to our, yeah. our kids? Yep. It's so important because that's, that's something that parents struggle with all the time. I don't like going to that person's house because they let the kids have this and do this. And it's okay to have one set of rules in your home and then have them figure out what to do in the outside world. It, it's funny. I call it being, um, being the Skittles kid. So if you're the kid who never is allowed to have candy or anything like that, that kid, you can pick them out at a birthday party. Because they're the ones sitting at the table, not playing, eating all the Skittles, right? Because they don't get that at home. So you, it's not that you, everything has to be within reason and everything has to be within balance. Because at some point, you're going to be an adult and you can have all the Skittles you want. And you have to be able to manage and you have to be able to say no to yourself and you have to be able to regulate, right? So, and letting your kids see different kinds of parenting um, styles within you and your spouse or a different teacher this happens every september every year i'll get parents calling me saying my child is not in the class with his friends and this is terrible and this is awful and i'm going to call the principal the schools are bombarded at the beginning of the year with parents so upset that their kids are not in the same class as their best friends from the year before first of all i've been doing this 30 years so i've seen it and i've had three kids of my own i'm telling you in three days they won't care they don't care three days later they have new friends they're okay and if you immediately turn that upside down and create a space where they don't have to handle that every single time, they, you'll have robbed them of a really important lesson. I can be so sad and think that I'm not going to have new friends and think that it's impossible for me to get through this. And just a few days later, I can be okay. That's, do you know how powerful that lesson is? How important that lesson is? That if we don't let our kids have some of these moments with, within reason, we are not giving them that thicker skin, that, that hardware that they need to be able to handle what life is going to throw at them because you will eventually not be able to control all those things. It's impossible. And in that same context, we started off the podcast by talking about how like bullying is now can be 24-7. Yep. So where do you look at that and how do you help families navigate that as mm-hmm. like, look, my child is in this situation yep. and they're they're not with their friends in class, but there's also like some bullying or some mm-hmm. other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just online, it's offline, yep. it's there, and it's very severe. Yep. How, how does that well, fit into So this that mix? is when you jump in, right? If it, That's where you have to be their friend. If alone. there's any chance of harm. Of course. If, there, if there's trauma, if it's repeated, if it's systematic, absolutely. But not everything is bullying. Like I'll have kids come home and, and say to their parents, so-and-so bullied me. Well, what did she do? She took my pencil or she took my seat. It, not everything is bullying, right? So it's, it's about having this dialogue and this conversation with your child that you understand what bullying is. And that at the same time, you're also making sure you, they know that you believe in them and that you know that they have the strength to get through this and that they can talk to adults and they can talk to you. Again, this is why you want your children to be able to talk to you. When you're, when you're really good at this mirroring thing, when your children know that you can handle um, all of their emotions when they come to you, um, that's, th- that's how they're going to tell you. That's how you're going to find out what's going on. So immediately you mirror, you, in, you get right in there and you dare, you, know, you dare to be there and go right w- in there with, when they're sad about what's happening with this bullying child, uh, with this child that's bullying them. And then you go to the school and you find out what the safety plan is and you find out what the conversation is going to be around how to help the what's going to happen in the classroom, what's school doing to make this situation go away. Um, and then there's some really neat things you can teach your child about being bullied. Um, and if it's a big situation, obviously you want adults to help. You want to call the school and you want to have intervention. But um, one of the greatest things you can teach your kid is how to look bored. 
If a kid is anyone who is being mean to someone else is lined up with fear, not love, first of all. So um, happy, relaxed, comfortable people don't bully anybody. They don't have to. They don't have to brag. They don't have to cheat. They don't have to be jealous. Anyone who's really lined up doesn't need to do that thing, that, that, that type of thing. So if anyone is doing that, they're in, they're in pain too, or they wouldn't do it, right? So when you teach your child, if somebody's being a bully, and they come over to you, they say, oh, you're ugly, or I don't like what you're wearing. And you get mad back, yeah, well, I don't like what you're wearing. If you're both responding with fear, because anger is fear, you're going to have an escalation. If that person gets really, really upset um, and looks devastated, you're going to have an escalation. Because if a child is really um, in pain and really being a bully in that moment, that's what they wanted. They wanted to upset that child, and they're literally taking their power and they're kind of, I tell kids, it's like a video game, the, the child who's been socially aggressive or who's been the bully, their life bar goes up. And the kid that just got treated badly, their life bar goes down. But if you teach your child to stay super neutral or look really bored in that situation, and it's amazing how many kids can do this. I know people will think, oh my gosh, I don't know, my, my child can do this. They can. So a child says something nasty and you go like, so? I don't care. And, and you practice it, you role play it, you spend some time with your child practicing that, the other child has no idea what to do with that because they didn't get any power. They didn't get any response. They didn't get anger. They didn't get upset. They didn't get anything. Then that child comes home and tells you about it because now you have this open relationship where you talk about it and then you go further with it if you need to with the teacher, with the school, with the principal, the trustee, whoever you need to go to to make sure the situation's under control. But you're also giving your child some power and it's a very fine line between empowering your child and making them feel blamed, right? That's a very delicate balance. It's a very delicate balance point there. Um, and have them practice. I'll, I'll teach kids, if you don't know what to say, just say so. So? No, no kid who's being a bully knows what to do with that. It's like, <laughs> they just walk away. It actually really works, but it takes some practice. It really does. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I know this is not the place, this is not the specific place for the conversation, mm -hmm. but also we do know that because of processed foods, increased sugar in the diet, mm -hmm. and also the gut microbiome, we know that there is some biological is. things that are going on that are also increasing the rates of anxiety. Yes, later. absolutely. And a lot of the functional medicine doctors mm -hmm. and the pediatricians that are out there are really trying to help parents understand that, okay, look, there's something fundamental that's changed in our food system. Yes. And there are so many more chemicals in our food and other aspects. And these things are having all sorts of effect on our ability to self-regulate. Yes. So that's just one thing to put out there. Yep. And, yep. uh, I don't know if you have anything to say about well, that. Well, the only thing I would say is, again, it comes back to this idea of lining up with love, right? So, and you get them, you get the kids to do that too. When you're, when you love yourself and you're feeling good and you're in that state of just feeling um, balanced, you're not going to want to eat yucky things. You're not going to want to overeat. You're not going to want to um, do anything that doesn't make you feel great. When you, so that takes care of like emotional eating and things like that, or desperate eating. I got to have that. Um, when you're lined up with love, you make better decisions. And whenever possible, you put the best things that you can in your body. And when you can't, you're on an airplane or you're somewhere and you have to eat whatever's there. It's not the end of the, don't make your kids so terrified that if they eat non-GMO broccoli, something's going to happen to them. Right? You want to scare them, um, but you want to. It's always about balance, right? It's always about balance, and these are things definitely to be aware of. But I think the most important nutrition, honestly, is emotional nutrition. So true. I really do think so. I really do. I want to come back a little bit to talking about love and fear, please, because fear. You think that we have all these emotions, but really, anger, jealousy, bitterness, 
you know, all of those things are all just fear, right? So when you're, when anyone is in pain, they're, they're in a state of fear. So let's come back to anxiety because I want to make sure people, because there's, there's people who are listening that are experiencing anxiety or they're listening to this in the middle of the night and they can't sleep because they've got a knot in their stomach and they can't breathe and their heart's pounding. And it's such a miserable feeling to be anxious. And when children are anxious, that usually comes out of them not wanting to sleep, ending up in your bed at night, um, separation anxiety, being afraid to go into parties, go to school, go to you know clubs or things that they normally love to do. I see school phobia absolutely on the rise, which is a really sticky one. We can come back to that one. That's a really sticky one. Um, I see all kinds of uh, kind of obsessive compulsive anxieties with young people today around social anxiety is a huge one. And I think that's primarily gotten worse because of cell phones, because of all the likes and the dings and where you are in, in terms of social media. Um, there, you know, uh, kids being obsessed, like with that their boyfriend or girlfriend is going to cheat on them. That's like a crazy thing I'm seeing in young people where they're like looking at their phone all the time and looking over their partner's phone, getting their partner's code, looking at in their partner's messages. Like it's kind of crazy what's going on out there. It's getting out of control. So all of this fear is, um, fear is contagious. It really is. It's contagious. So when you're around fearful people, you start to be fearful. So there's a few really simple things you can do. First of all, I have all the news feeds off my phone off, done. And I don't have any social media on it unless, except for the ones that I actually have to when I'm communicating with the people I work with. I don't have like the, I don't look at the news. I, I'm on a news fast right now. So I'm actually really trying myself to limit how much exposure I have to things that make me, I know I'll have a pit in my stomach after looking at the news. Like, why do I need that in my day? I don't right now. So I'm going to avoid that. So again, making sure the news isn't running in the background with your kids, that you don't have the radio on, you know, talking about what's going on in the world. Your kids don't need to hear that stuff. Um, having blackout times from from your cell phones and your devices um, is really important. But let's let's talk for a second about important what, for kids, but also important for adults. Yes, absolutely. Just even doing like a phone free weekend where it's like hundred hey, percent. I'm gonna check my phone at one o'clock today. Just letting you guys know I'm out. You know, in the meantime. Yeah. And then I'm going to have the evening off. Yes. Just even for human beings. You'll feel so much better. And so your kids and their personalities will change. Yeah. Especially if a teenager. If you, if you have a, a blackout week or a blackout night or a, a dopamine fast, I call it, um, you'll see they're happier. Their, their eyes are brighter. They're funnier. They enjoy themselves more. It's like the light's back on. We, we really do have to take this very seriously. So that's a huge part of it. But let's also talk about techniques. What can you do when you're in a ball, right? Or when you're having a panic attack and what is a panic attack or what, what is it when you have these super high levels of anxiety? And there are lots of things that you can do. So I want people to listen both as a, a human being for yourselves, but also when you're thinking about your kids being super anxious. Few little tips that work really well. If you just drop your tongue, if you just let your tongue go soft on, the, on your bottom teeth and just let your tongue relax, can you feel what happens in your stomach? Your stomach lets go. Your stomach relaxes. So the first thing that happens when we get anxious is our survival program starts running. Because And it's that part of our brain, that limbic part of our brain is not, it's very primitive. It's not very smart. It just cares if you're going to survive or not. 
That's it. And it's basically a giant tape recorder that just records frightening, alarming, arousing events and puts it in this tape recorder in your brain. And then it has the ability to override your frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that thinks, takes perspective, plans, says, oh, this isn't really such a big deal. This, you know, whatever it is, it's, that's the part that kind of inhibits and takes perspective. So when the limbic system takes over, cortisol is running through your body, adrenaline is running through your body, your frontal lobe is offline, just like a computer. It is offline. You do not have access to that part of your brain anymore. You are now in full limbic um, meltdown. And when that happens, our heart pounds, our, our muscles tighten up, we tighten all of our core muscles to protect all of our internal organs, we get ready to fight, flight, or freeze. So we, so, and here's the other thing. When, so let's say that something's chasing us. Tiger's chasing us. Saber-toothed tiger's chasing us. We run and we hide. We don't hide like this. Oh, that was close. Oh, that was a close one. If we're hiding, we're like, right? And we're tight and we're barely breathing. And if we are, we're breathing with the very, very top part of our lungs so we don't make any noise. So that thing keeps going and walks on by. And there's context to that fear. So what happens in our world today is we're going into fight or flight over all kinds of things that are not actually real. They can't, they're, they're not going to hurt us in that moment. So in the beginning, when I talked about useful anxiety and useless anxiety, right, you're, there's no way if you're, here, I'll give you an example. If you're crossing the street, you're not going to use your frontal lobe and there's a car coming at you quickly. You're not going to go, oh, that car's coming really fast. Eh, I could go that way. Eh, it might be faster if I go that way. If I'm going to do all that thinking, I'm going to get hit by a car. So the limbic system takes over and you go, ah, and you run to the side of the road and you're like, oh, oh my God, I was so close. Oh. But, and you don't even know how you got there because that is a quick time-sensitive time, -based, time -sensitive adrenaline based uh, response that is very, very reasonable in that situation. It doesn't help us, though, in situations where something has already happened, an exam we've written, something we're worried about, something we think is going to happen. And when we go into fight or flight, our brain does not understand, why are you still standing here? That thing is chasing you. You're still standing here. Are you crazy? So it loops. And the anxiety thought, the thing that made you scared, loops through your body again, and you have the fear again. Because it hits the, it hits the, the pedal again. Get and, moving. Get moving. Why are you standing here? That's what a panic attack is. Right. So then your body is, you know, is freaking out. You can't breathe. You, your chest is tight. You're dizzy. You're nauseous. Whatever's going on in your body, your stomach's doing flip flops because your brain doesn't understand why you're still standing there. So you, you, the first thing you say to yourself is, is this life threatening? No, it is not. Okay. It, out loud. Out, out loud if you can. If you don't want to look crazy, then just say it in your head, <laughs> right? But you say, is this life-threatening? No, it is not. Is there anything I can do about this situation right now? And if it's something that you're worried about that's going to happen in the future, and most anxiety is anticipatory, what's going to happen in the future. In fact, if you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you're depressed, you're in the past. And when you're in a state of love, when you're lined up with love, you're in the present. And you can't feel anything else but love when you're in the present if you're consciously making yourself aware of being in that place. So when you're panicking and there's nothing to panic about, there's nothing chasing you, there's nothing in front of you, you have to override the limbic system. So you do that by asking yourself that question. You do that by dropping your tongue in the bottom of your um, mouth. Just let your tongue drop so your stomach drops. As soon as that happens, it sends a signal to the brain, okay, well, he's relaxing his stomach muscles. He's letting go there. So maybe that thing isn't in front of him anymore. Then you take some deep breaths. You do, there's all kinds of different techniques for doing breathing. You can find the one that you like the most, but like some deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, dropping your shoulders, relaxing. 
giving your body signals that you are actually not in danger right now. Now, when we talk about parenting, here's what's really interesting. When a child is in a full fight or flight moment, and we start saying things like, just calm down, do some breathing, you'll be fine, that won't work in that moment. And I'll tell you why. And I can't remember if I gave this example the last time I was on, but it's such a good one. Let's say you went to the mall, okay, and you're in the mall with your five-year-old. And you're shopping and you get distracted for a second and you look and you can't find your child anymore. And you're like, oh my God, where is he? Oh my God, oh. And you start, you start grabbing people. Have you seen my son? He's five years old. He's wearing a blue shirt. And you start screaming. You're running around. You, you know, you're panicking. You're in, and if parents, we, you're a parent, you know this feeling. It is beyond terrifying. And let's say the security guard comes up and says, ma'am, ma'am, you need to calm down. Let's sit down and do some breathing together. Shall we breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth? <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna shove that person out of the way. You're going to punch them or something, and you're going to run, and you're going to try and deal with the situation. So when you are talking to someone who's in a full panic mode and you try to do that, they're not going to respond the way that you think they're going to respond. And you're going to, the more rational you try to get, the more you try to tell them it's okay, the more the limbic system goes, don't listen to them. They're crazy. They're going to get, you know, you're, they're getting in the way. You got to, you got to get out of here. You, you're in danger. And so you're not going to listen to the person that's trying to calm you down in that moment. So in that moment, that's actually where the calm technique comes in really, really handy. Okay. Now you're not going, oh my God, this is terrible. So if you think back to the example of the being in the, in the mall with your child, what do you want the security guard to say? You don't want him to go, oh no, this is my first child that's been lost. I don't know. I got, what do you think? Like that, you don't want that kind of person. You want someone to go, okay, tell me what he looks like. How tall is he? What was he wearing? Where did you see? That's what you want, right? You want that kind of energy and then you're going to start to feel better. So if you are panic as a, as a parent, or if you're underdoing it as a parent, when your child is panicking, you're going to have an escalation in both of those cases. But if you're like, tell me why you're so scared, you look absolutely petrified right now. What's going on for you? What is it about this situation that's making you so afraid right now? That kind of energy is a little different than the empathy piece. Because you can do that, but generally it's more clarifying that works when someone's, remember there's clarifying, summarizing, um, those are the different ways uh, of using language when you mirror. And when you have that calm, centered urgency, where you're, you're actually transferring that urgency, they're, they're, they're able to let you know how scared you actually, they, how scared they actually are in that moment. They will look at you, realize that you get it, and their own limbic system is going to come, uh, is going to calm down and their frontal lobe is going to come back on. Right? It's literally like saying to someone who's, who's standing on a bridge and you say to them, oh, you know, jump off. It's great. People have been bouncing all day. I don't know why. Like it's working. You're not going to jump off that bridge no matter what somebody tells you. So when you try to use rational thinking and you try to explain and you've got your chart out about why they shouldn't be afraid, none of that's going to work. None of that is going to work in that moment. You're actually going to cause the person to escalate in that moment. So it's tricky business, anxiety. And, you know, a big part of these techniques is when it doesn't go right the first time or you try a couple of times, people beating themselves up. Yes. yes. We talked a little bit about this last time, but I think it's just so important to bring in here because when you beat yourself up, you're less likely to try it again in the future. Of course. And you don't, you're you're doing the very thing that we're trying to teach our kids not to do in the first place. Yes, exactly. And what I say to parents is you've got to use the calm technique on yourself. 
you have to be really compassionate and really understanding and literally in your own head say, it's so hard to have a child that's terrified all the time. It's so hard to feel like I haven't done enough to make my child feel safer in this world. And some of it is literally just temperament. You can have one child, same parents, same house, same school, and one kid is like, ah, let's go. And the other one is in a ball afraid to do anything. So much of it is temperament. It, less of it has to do with you than you think. What Where it does come down to us as parents is we have to know when we need to push our kids, when we need to not let the anxiety have a win, which we need to come back to in a second. Um, but being kind to yourself and understanding that this is not easy is actually a really, really important part of being parent, which again is lining up with love, right? When your child is so panicked that they cannot breathe, like they are literally in a ball, in those moments you teach your child, hug a pillow, curl up in the fetal position, gravity blankets, weighted blankets are fantastic if you have kids that have anxiety. If you have anxiety, go get a weighted blanket. It's phenomenal because what it's doing is it's telling the limbic system I'm safe, right? I'm hiding. Nothing's going to find me. I'm okay. You, you create an environment in that moment, if you can, that, sh that tells the brain I'm hiding. I'm safe. I'm away from that thing that is potentially super dangerous and going to hurt me. Um, and that can work really well. Just rubbing your child's back. Sometimes they don't even want to be touched when they're that anxious, but just saying things like, baby, I'm here. You've been through this before. It will pass. Let's, let's breathe together. And the calmer you stay, the, the more it helps your child. If you're, if you're thinking, oh my God, I've never seen him like this before. Oh my God, what am I going to do? If that's the energy between the two of you, that energy field is going to intermingle and it's not going to work well. So you have to have that loving place of, not loving detachment, that's not right. Confidence that this will pass. That child is not going to stay like that forever. They're not. You have to breathe. You have to relax your stomach. You have to actually calm yourself down. Tell yourself this is not life-threatening. My child is really anxious right now, but they will get through this. And they are learning. They are figuring out how to manage all of these big feelings. And that, that can only having. come from like not looking at the situation as a wrong thing, yes. as a bad thing. Yes. It's like this is real. It's happening. Right Let's this deal with real. it. It's real. It's happening for them right now. Yeah. The human body is not crazy. The brain isn't crazy. It's just using this as a survival mechanism. Yep. But we can also help the kid, the child, or our loved ones know, mm -hmm. even ourselves, mm -hmm. that, okay, you think you're trying to survive from something, but yep. actually it's, it's okay. Yes. It's okay. Yep. Using the content. That's right. Absolutely. And then if you're having a panic attack yourself, say, reminding yourself, this will pass. I'm not going to feel this way forever. This will pass. Doing your breathing. We'll get to some more techniques in a moment, but especially as a parent, staying really calm. And then if you're really worried, if your child is really suffering, go and get support. Get help. Get your child, get your child a therapist. Get them some CBT. Teach them how to actually manage and drive this brain of theirs so that it doesn't drive them. Um, that's a really important thing. Don't be afraid of that. There's no shame in that. We have, we need a license for all kinds of things. How about learning how to drive your own brain? I mean, that's phenomenal. And to get help and coaching and support on that is, I think, really, really important. And it's a very important message to give your children that it's okay to go and figure out how to do that and to have that support and help. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have to be embarrassed of that. These are really important tools, really important tools. So you mentioned about other techniques. Mm -hmm. Is there one that you want to share here? Before? Well, there, so there's a few. Um, here's my favorite. One of the things that, that we do a lot of, all of us, and this is, this is more adults, but kids do it too. We ruminate. We ruminate and we take all of our mental energy and we focus on the thing that we're afraid of. Now, biologically, our brain, our limbic system wants us to do that. It wants us to pay, the attention, pay attention to our environment in that moment so that thing doesn't come back. But there is no thing that's going to come back 
Um, so you have, that's when you sort of have to do the initial stuff where you calm yourself down. But what we keep doing is we keep going over and over and looping through the thing that we're afraid of, the, the conversation we didn't think that went well, or the test we think we just failed, or the date that just went badly, or whatever it is that you're terrified about in that moment. And sometimes we don't even know. Sometimes it's generalized. Sometimes you can feel fine and then out of nowhere just have like a panic response. Um, but in those moments, if you're ruminating on the thing you're scared about, you're activating it. You're actually sending more energy and you're telling your brain, oh, okay, that thing's still here. Keep this up. I'm only alive because I'm worrying about it. So I'm going to keep doing this. So you actually have to catch yourself when you are ruminating. And that is so difficult. And some kids have what I call a runaway brain and lots of adults have what I call a runaway brain. So in those moments, the one thing you can do is try to find a thought that is slightly less scary than the thought you just had. And sometimes it helps to do this out loud. I call it the ladder, right? Okay, I'm really scared right now. I feel really horrible. I think, I think I just blew it with my friend or whatever it is that you're worried about. And then you have your brain go, but at least I'm in my bed and I'm safe. Or at least my pajamas are really soft. Or at least my mom's here. Or at least whatever it is. And if, if you're an adult, then it's, okay, I mean, I'm really, these pajamas are comfortable at least. At least the temperature in the room is okay. And you keep climbing up because you can't go to like, I have no reason to be this scared. I've got everything in my life. I'm, I'm being a, the, the most spoiled, ridiculous person. And I, I should have control over this. What's wrong with me? If you go into that mode, it, it's, you cannot jump yourself out of a situation like this. You have to slowly sneak behind the anxieties back and climb yourself out step by step by step. Otherwise the anxiety is going to go, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't, don't use those strategies. Don't do that breathing. Are you crazy? That thing's coming back. You need to stay that scared so that thing doesn't eat you. This is why when kids have um, CBT, which is great, by the way, I'm not saying CBT is not great, but you'll often see them not wanting to go or not wanting to do the exercises. This is why I use the, um, the analogy of the anxiety dog, because unless kids hate dogs, then don't use dogs. But you, most kids love dogs. And it's a great way to say, we don't want to get rid of the dog. We love the dog. We love the dog. We don't want to get rid of the dog. We just want the dog to be in his little dog bed and come when we call him. We don't want the dog sitting on our chest all the time. We want the dog to listen to us. And we want the dog to be able to let us enjoy the things that we love to enjoy and only come out when there's a real danger. And so that kind of calms kids down a little bit. Um, but the scariest thing you can tell someone is if, if they're afraid of, you know, gaining weight or if it's an eating disorder and they're afraid of food, telling them we're going to get rid of your anxiety so you don't feel this way anymore, they're going to be like, forget that. Um, if, I, if, if I'm not afraid anymore, then I'm going to do this dangerous thing that I don't want to do. Mm. Right? So it's a very, very tricky thing, anxiety. So um, the gravity blanket is good. The breathing is really important. Um, sensory stuff, like just paying attention to what you're touching, what you're feeling, what you're, what you're smelling, what you're tasting. Um, that can anchor you. All things that bring kids and their parents back into the present moment mm -hmm. and yep. a sense of like what's here. Yes. Because yes. even, you know, Dr. Dane Siegel and his work, they talk about how the mind is not the brain. The mind is kind of like yes. our full body and our yes. full awareness. Yes. And some people even think about like the internet being part of like the mind, right? Yeah. Like yep. all, the way that we use our phones. The planet being stuff. conscious of itself. Yes. The planet being conscious yes. of, of itself. Yeah. And so that mind Sometimes it's very scatterbrained, like a yeah. like a browser that has twenty thousand mm -hmm. tabs open, mm -hmm. and anything that can help us kind of just focus in, yes, it, with what's happening now, with what the situation yeah. is at hand, starts to immediately 
calm the situation yes, down. Absolutely. Because it, when you're in the now and there isn't actually something in front of you, then you're going to be okay. One of the things that's also really important to understand about anxiety is it it's based on, so the subconscious mind is basically just a giant tape recorder that records scary events and it files it. And not only does it, scare, it file that event, but everything surrounding that event, it does like a wide sweep. It casts a big net. So, you know, I don't know, let's say thousands of years ago, if you were hunting and you were, I don't know, grabbing some berries and you wander into a cave and there's a bear in there and you manage to escape, you're going to be afraid of that hill. You're going to be afraid of those berries. You're going to be afraid of that time of year. You're going to be afraid of the dark. You're going to be afraid of smell of the smell of the bear. You're going to be afraid of the sound. You're going to be, every, your brain is going to generalize all of those things because that's how it makes sure that it's recorded everything about that event so that if you're ever in that situation again, it has really erred on the side of caution and you're going to pick up one of those signals that's scary and you're going to be okay. And then when we, this is important too, when we think about memories, they're not these perfect little memories that we file in a filing cabinet and take out and look again and put back. Memories are splattered all around the brain in the olfactory part of the brain, uh, the, the smell center, the visual center, the tactile center, it goes everywhere. And then when we remember something, we reassemble it. And as we reassemble it, we also reassemble it and it's subject to whatever we're feeling at the time that we reassemble that memory. And we're usually afraid when we remember that thing that we're afraid of. So we're actually adding another layer of fear to that memory and filing it back in the filing drawer again. And every time we pull it out and think about it and remember it, we are more afraid. And that's how, that's what PTSD is. That's what phobias are. That's why, that's why I talked about at the beginning that anxiety likes to take space. It, it just likes to claim all this space. It's doing it to save you. It's doing it because it thinks it's doing a really, really good job of keeping you alive. But what it's slowly doing is staking such a claim that your own life gets so small that you're afraid to do anything and you're afraid to go anywhere. That's why if a child is afraid and you take them out of gymnastics and say, okay, fine, you don't have to go next time. This is the getting back on the horse thing. They're going to be 10 times as afraid the next time to go back to gymnastics or whatever, whatever happened or whatever they were afraid of there. So even seeing if you can get that child to file a little, just, just a little bit of a claim, can we sit outside? Can we spend five minutes there? Can we do our breathing while we're staying in that situation for a few moments just so we can have a little win against the anxiety? And you talk about um, the anxiety not having a win. And that's so important. And kids get that. And, and anyone who's anxious gets that. They understand that the anxiety is just creeping into your life. It's this hungry emotion that likes to be fed and you can't feed it. Going through a difficult situation and on the other end of it, ending out with a win and knowing like, okay, I'm, I'm okay. And that builds confidence. Yes. You know, we had Dr. Joan Rosenberg on the podcast and she's saying, you know, confidence is going through a tough situation and on the other end of it, knowing that you're okay and that you handled it. Yes. And that's resilience, right? That's resilience. And that is the greatest gift that you can give your child. The other technique, which is phenomenal, is tapping. Have you heard of tapping? Yeah, absolutely. Tapping is phenomenal. It's... For those that are not familiar, mm -hmm. could you break it down? So basically, it's, it's known as the emotional freedom technique, EFT. There's all kinds of data that supports why it works. The best thing to do is go on YouTube. There's a ton of free videos. It's, it, there's a zillion out there. Try it yourself. After one or two rounds, it drops cortisol levels by about 60%. It's unbelievable. It is the most, it's hands down the greatest thing I've ever learned as a practitioner to help people with anxiety. I use it myself all the time. Um, it's a phenomenal tool and kids intuitively get it. Like they, they're a little bit of like, oh, it's so long, but they, 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 you know, sometimes they don't want to do it for that reason. And often they don't want to do it because they know they're going to be less anxious after. 
So sometimes you have to be a little bit of a frontal lobe there and say, no, no, we're going to do it together. And generally it works best if you learn how to use the technique. There's lots of resources online. Um, and then you do it, you do the actual tapping on your child. Uh, but you can also do it on yourself. It helps you. And if you know that you're going to a situation with your child where you're going to get anxious or you're going to get upset, tap first. Tap in the car, tap in the shower. It's honestly, it's great. And, and just for people who are like, tap, what is she talking about? Tapping, mm-hmm. tap dancing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a lot of great resources. We'll put some of them yep. in the show notes. Our friend Nick Ortner does the oh, he's Yeah, the tapping solution. Tapping solution. It's basically tapping these different acupuncture points while you're repeating the thing that you're afraid of. So remember I told you that the layers of fear? So when you're actually talking about the thing you're afraid of and you're tapping these different acupuncture points, which touch is one of the ways that we relax ourselves, right? If you're, What do you do when you're in a movie and it's scary and there's a jump scare? You grab the person next to you. Why? Because it's tactile. We like the parasympathetic nervous system that likes to feel somebody else near us so we're not alone, right? So you're actually, it's like a little, it's just a neural hack basically that you're tapping these acupuncture points while you're talking about your fear. And as you're doing that, your cortisol levels are dropping. So you're actually doing the opposite. You're peeling a layer of fear off the anxiety yeah, instead you might of say adding. A phrase like, even though I'm afraid mm-hmm. of. Uh, that I blew it with that person or I failed that test or whatever thing you're scared so you're of. You're acknowledging it, right? You're it's... going deep in. And the deeper you go into your fear and extract it, the better it works. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. All incredible solutions towards something that feels like what. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. Yeah. When it yeah. comes to anxiety. And yet, if anything, it's we need these solutions now more than ever mm-hmm. because on the flip side of it is where, you know, some people feel like we might be over medicating mm-hmm. uh, kids yep. and adults too. Mm-hmm. And then there's the adaptation that our body has towards these medications. They no longer work the same exact yeah. way. Yep. And really internally, uh, you know, we had... Uh, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Shonak Patel, pain medicine doctor, and he's like, you know, the thing we have to understand about pain is that pain is like an alarm. It's going off because it's trying to let you know something. Yep. And if it keeps on going off, it's trying to tell you, pay attention, yep. pay attention. So, pay and attention. anxiety is pain, and anxiety is and giving anxiety information. Is the same situation. So, yep. any kind of things that we have that just cover it up and suppress yep. it are suppressing our body's ability to say, hey, I'm hurting right now. I need help. I need something. That's true. Well, and there's nothing wrong with using medication. If you, right. if we're you are against medication, for sure. it's just the over-medication that might the, be out there. There definitely sometimes. is. And there are times, even with kids, where they, it, it's almost like you wouldn't teach someone to swim who's drowning and saying, okay, now kick your feet and put your... You'd, have, you'd throw them something that keeps them afloat while they're learning. And sometimes that's the role that medication plays. But the goal always is to be able to have the confidence and the belief that you can actually control this magnificent brain and this incredible instrument that that our whole body is and that we can actually do it. And part of what's happened in our culture is we've been taught you need a pill, you need this, you need to, you need to go to this person. Like there's, there's, there needs to be more... Um, more energy given to helping kids understand and adults understand you are the boss of your brain. You are in control. You can do it. You, you actually do have all the skills that you need to be able to manage what life throws at you. And sometimes it can seem impossible and it can seem really hard. And anxiety is an absolute beast. It, I, I will tell you that it really is. And this is something that you, it's like, you wouldn't go to the gym and do two sit-ups and go, oh, I don't have abs yet. Like this can take a long time where you're really just working on these skills. The other thing that I think is super important about the ruminating, which I talked about, is the, what, how, what you spend your time thinking about is incredibly important. We care what we put in our bodies, right? Care what you put in your head. 
what you're thinking about and what you're obsessing about and what you're ruminating about is constantly sending a fear signal to your brain. So if you're walking around the house going, unbelievable, and this is incredible, I can't believe this, and of course that didn't happen, if that's what you're doing in your head, your brain, the limbic system, does not know the difference between your kid who left his gym bag in the middle of the floor and you tripped on it and a, and a tiger that's chasing you down the street. It doesn't. So all day long as we're uh, thinking about things and obsessing and focusing on what's not right and talking about in our own heads and with our friends and telling our stories over and over again about what's not working, we are sending chemicals to our body. It's, it's psychoneurobiology. So be picky about what you think. Let yourself ruminate for a few minutes. Let yourself let it out and then say to yourself, okay, five, 10 minutes, I'm done now. Now I'm going to find a thought that's slightly better than that one and slightly better. It's like climbing up that ladder, slightly better, or think about something completely neutral. You might only be able to do it for a few seconds at first. That's okay. And then you're back to ruminating. Then climb up again. Keep fighting with your brain. Keep trying to achieve this mastery over it. And people say, I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. I'm like, yes, you do. If you have time to ruminate and you have time to suffer, then you have time to work on not ruminating and not suffering. So if you're going to worry and think anyway, at least tag something along with it that pulls you in the other direction. Because as much as the brain can go in that negative direction, guess what? It can go in the opposite direction. You can be in a state of such joy and such happiness and such alignment that heart-brain coherence that you just feel wonderful. You're, if your brain can do it this way, it can do it this way. Um, and that's a really important thing that I don't think people really understand. They think they need something else to make them do it. And this is why, of course, drinking, drugs, like any people just they can't stand being in their own bodies. They can't stand their brain doing this to them, and they have to have relief. But every time you reach for an external source to make yourself feel better, you've made yourself dependent on that external source. Mm-hmm. And that's what addictions are right? I'm only going to feel better when I've done that thing, bought that thing, drank that thing, smoked that thing. Um, And you have to change the way that your brain, the direction that your brain is going. And it is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. In addition to all the great books that you have, are there other thought leaders or resources specifically on the topic of anxiety anxiety that you recommend to families that you work with? There's a, I mean, there's a few, Raising Your Anxious Child, you know, I'll come up with some for you and we'll post some. There, there's a few. I think, I think the best thing for parents to realize is that they have they have these tools, using the tools themselves, using that connection, um, the 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 oxytocin itself is a cortisol blocker. It's a powerful powerful cortisol blocker, and it's free, and you don't need a prescription, and you don't run out of it, and you don't need a practitioner to do it for you. You do it yourself. Mm. Um, there's tons of resources. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what they are. I'll get we'll them to you. To them I'll get them to you. But um, just knowing that those resources are out there, but that helping your child learn that they actually drive their Ferrari of a brain. Um, and if it, uh, that's why I use the Ferrari analogy. Like, it's a great car. It's fast. But if you don't know how to drive it, you're going in the ditch. And the minivans are going to pass you. So you better, you have to learn how to drive that incredible instrument. And anxious children often have anxious parents because temperamentally that gets passed down. It's also the kind of, um, it's the way the family runs. It's the way the family works. People are, some people are so anxious they don't even know they're anxious. They're just feeling the physiological symptoms, stomach aches, headaches. Um, but it all starts with, think of it as like thought pollution. Like just be pickier about what you think in your head. That's probably the biggest p- takeaway from today, I think. Well, I'm going to ask my nephew, Jamin, who's here, yeah. who also uh, 
has been using different techniques, including they practice the calm technique awesome. after hearing the podcast. Uh, Jamin, do you have a question for Jennifer? Do you want to come up here and ask it into the microphone? So brave. Awesome. Okay, so um, one of my questions is, um, should you talk about what you're anxious about even though when you're like in the moments where you're not anxious? That's such, that's an amazing question. That's a really good question. So first of all, don't get mad at yourself if you do because we all do that a little bit. So what I say to people is let yourself do it a little bit because our brain tells us if we talk about it, that's actually going to help us in that situation. So maybe allow yourself to talk about it for a little bit, maybe five minutes. Um, if you're talking with your mom, then she can say, talk about it a little bit more, and then it's time to start moving your brain in the other direction, yeah. right? And then do that thing where I said you just find the next best feeling thought, some other thing that makes you feel a little bit better. Other things that you can do is you can make a happy list. You can think about things that make you really happy in your life already. Yeah write those things down and talk about those things. So when you start talking about things that you do want, instead of talking about the things that you don't want, your brain is going to send a very di different signal to your tummy and to your chest and to your heart. And it's going to tell you that you're okay. That's a really good question. That's a great question. And my other question is, um, you want to get a little closer to the microphone yeah. just so we can hear you. Okay. Why does why does um, looking at your phone or device increase the chance of anxiety? Oh, another, such an amazing question. Okay, so let me tell you the science behind this, okay? So when you're looking at your phone or you're playing a video game, what happens is when you get it the next level or you get a ping on your phone or you just got a like on something, your brain sends out a chemical called dopamine. Yeah. Okay, so dopamine is actually supposed to reward you for doing something really boring like fishing or hunting or building something. It's like, oh, this is so hard. This is so hard. But I caught a fish, yay. And then you get this blast of adrenaline. And that's the way that our bodies keep us surviving because we have to do boring things to stay alive. So that's what dopamine is for. But game designers and app designers have figured out, oh, if I give my person a little bl blast of dopamine, they're going to come back and play this game more. They right? They're going to that kind of a little bit. So so that's fine. You just have to you just have to be smarter than them. Yeah. And you just have to say, "Okay, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use the dopamine in a different way. When I've done my homework, when I've gone for a walk with the dog, when I've done something else, built something, played with Lego, whatever it is, I'm going to reward my brain for doing that project that I just finished by playing my video game." Now you're using the dopamine the way that it should be used, right? You can outsmart the system. Yeah. Doing the hard work first, and then getting the reward later. You got it. That's a much healthier way to do it. Awesome. What a what a good brain you have. That's amazing. And can I tell you something else about those chemicals? The best chemicals are serotonin and oxytocin, and those you get from snuggles, cuddles, laughing your head off with friends, hugs, even cuddling and watching a video, watching a movie with your family. Not all screens are bad. Right? And you can have a little bit of screens. They're not going anywhere. You shouldn't have too much. You shouldn't have too much. Exactly. And I think as you guys get older, there's going to be like things you put in your eye, like a contact lens where you can see the screen and there's going to, virtual reality is going to get more and more real. So it's really important to be a smart kid and figure out, okay, I'm going to outsmart this technology instead of letting this technology outsmart me. Awesome. Great. Thank you for those questions. Really Jamie. good questions. Wow. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Do you want to sit down right over there? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Such good questions. Ask those, ask those questions. Oh, it was great. 
Um, you know, I asked you this last time, but I think it's so important mm-hmm. for anybody who feels like they're in the trenches mm-hmm. and there's not sure they're not sure if there's hope on the other end of it. You've worked with so many families. What's important for you to translate in this podcast for whoever's listening from all your experience with families that you've worked with, with whether it's parents facing with anxiety or whether it's kids facing anxiety? So I think the biggest thing is that it is it is possible for things to get better, that you have that power in yourself as a parent and as a human being to pull yourself out of that. That's really important. That when you are with your child and you are panicking too, it is so important to keep your own frontal lobe engaged so that you're literally saying in your head, my child is in pain and he doesn't know what to do. He's in this moment. He's going to be okay. Have a vision of your child at their absolute best. Literally, while your child is telling you, I'm terrible and I'm scared and whatever, as you're stroking their back or doing whatever you need, in your head, I want you to construct a story where your child comes up to you and goes, mom, this is, you know, your forehead to forehead. And your child is going, mom or dad, this is me freaking out. This is what happens. I got big feelings that I have a really hard time controlling sometimes, but I'm going to be okay. You saw me the other day having fun. You literally have an imaginary conversation with the best version of your child's self and watch what happens to you biochemically. And as crazy as this sounds, as you lift, your child will lift. There, there's this symbiotic thing that starts to happen where as you control your own neurobiology in that moment, your child will respond. It's a really beautiful thing. It's really incredible. And get help if you need it. These things don't work overnight. It takes time. You're not going to be able to just say to your child, do this and, and it's going to work. Um, it, kids don't work that way. Brains don't work that way. Be kind to yourselves. Be good to yourselves. And I want people to know that the oxytocin itself, as you use this technique on your child, it's doing the same thing with your brain. You're also getting those beautiful benefits. The, the same reward chemicals are flooding your brain. You're bringing your own self into that brain-heart coherence, which is good for your health, good for your mental health. Oxytocin makes you look younger, too. How about that? So, yeah, it, just keep doing it. And, and, um, and I've just seen so many families and so many kids where they're free. It's really about just wanting to be free. Right? They actually experience freedom from their anxiety. And many, if not most of them, do it without... Um, needing medication. And I always love the airplane al- analogy that you gave last time. Yeah. And, you know, you can go back and listen to it, but just what I'm taking away that I'm bringing to this ending part of the conversation is that there's going to be turbulence, mm-hmm. right? There's going to be bumps in the road. Yep. There's going to be turbulence. going to be contrast. It, there's going to be contrast. <laughs> yep. But as a parent, you're the captain of the ship. Yeah. And as you were sharing before, it's like, you let people know, hey guys, it's going to get a little bumpy. 10, 15 minutes though, we're going to be through I it. I got you. And everything is going to be fine. And everybody around you starts to understand that they're safe and secure Mm -hmm. and can move forward with what needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very well put. Thank you. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. There's all these incredible resources that are available Mm -hmm. that you've put together. In addition to the books that we read at the top of the show, Mm -hmm. can you share a little bit about the world that you've created sure. in your ecosystem yeah. if parents want to learn more. Absolutely. So I have a podcast yes. that's out there which talks about, goes deeper into these techniques. I'm, I'm really big on on teaching these techniques to people and that th- those the podcasts are free. I want people, it's better for all of us if everyone uses these techniques. I think it's mm. just better for the whole world. So there's the podcast. I do a Facebook Live on Connected Parenting 
pretty much once a week where people send in questions and I answer. And then I have an online course, which people are really enjoying, which is um, where I walk you through in detail. It's like a deep dive into the techniques. And then we've got some professional videos with actors that are actually acting out the connected, the, um, sorry, the calm technique before and after covering pretty much anything you can imagine anxiety being a huge one behavioral issues anger issues and then sibling issues bedtime eating like all all the stuff parents have to struggle with um and that also has a closed facebook group and an online coaching so that's another way to access me and then we have our team we have an office both in toronto and in san diego but we work with families all over the world um online so there's you can work with one of our therapists as well and there's such great resources because one of the themes that's absolutely present, and we talked a little bit about it in the past, is that parents for the first time really in human history are just going at it alone. And it's a big experiment. Yeah. And we need to kind of recreate that community that yeah. supports it. It was never meant to be a two-person job. It was it, never meant to be a yeah. two-person job. Yeah. And there's a lot of benefits to the way that we live right now, the independence, the mm-hmm. ability to not have to do everything the way that your parents did it, mm-hmm. to take more risks and adventure and other aspects there's things that we're also losing but if we can figure out a way to combine the two take all the freedoms that we have in this day and age just like with technology there's so many Mm -hmm. beautiful things that come with it of course yeah but if we can figure out how to use it and not it use us then that's when we really win and i think that one of the keys to do that for parents non-parents just anybody human beings Mm -hmm. is recreating our own village and our support system and our ecosystem everyone is craving that right now it's, yep. it's the number one thing that's out there. 100%. That, that's the truth. That, that's our true state. We are social beings. And we're, when we're good with our people, then we feel good. And we just need to have more people that we feel good with. One more bonus question. Mm-hmm. You made a big move from Toronto to San Diego mm-hmm. and have your family out here. Mm-hmm. How are ways that you on a personal level have recreated your village in that process of a move? So that's a really good question. So... Um, it's interesting because you would not know this, but I'm an introvert by nature. <laughs> I really am. Um, and, and so it's been a really interesting journey to kind of be in a new neighborhood. And my husband is much more of an extrovert. Like he's banging on all the doors and introducing himself and inviting people over. And so I've gone with that. So we've really putting yourself out there. Um, and again, it, you know, that's a sort of form of anxiety to be afraid to put yourself out there. So when you actually get out there and face your fears and have dinners with people and get together with people, it makes a huge difference. And then I also felt like I've made I've become more active in my daughter's school. I think is a great way. I interacted with other parents, um, and then creating my Facebook tribe, like my group of people that I just love to connect with. And I love. And now they're helping each other, which is the best. I mean, it's it's parents that are going through this, helping each other, and just being part of the tribe that way. Um, and just putting my phone down and having actual face to face conversations. Imagine that. Like that's that's amazing. Amazing and yeah. It's also okay if some of your closest people are not people that you've 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 met before. Absolutely. I can remember moving to further south of LA and living in Temecula for a little period of time in my life and just being in a situation where I just couldn't have a lot of face-to-face conversations with people, but just having like a Facebook group or like these deeper connections online or like almost like a modern day pen pal that you could have yeah. that you would connect with. Yep. I think that however you get it to have that depth Yes. Right. I think social media sometimes gets the scrutiny because it feels very, uh, it feels like sugar. It's a quick hit, but yeah. it's not sustenance. Yeah. But if you can turn it into that sustenance and that depth, there can still be um, a sense of connection that can come. From Absolutely. It. It's it's interesting to ask that question. I ha- we had um, a dinner the other night with a, a friend, someone I knew through another connection, who once a month, I think it's once a month, might even once a week, hosts a dinner in his house. 
and, and invites people who do not know each other on purpose. Every, I think it's once a month. Um, and then they all just talk about whether they're what the connection is, and then something about themselves that that is interesting and something that's vulnerable. And it was like scary at first, but it was the most incredible evening, like just even doing something like that. So my husband and I've talked about, we're, we're going to do an evening like that. I love it. And just randomly invite people and just have all these people that don't have any connection to each other at the table. It was really, an, it was an amazing experience. It was really neat. Well, you're about to show up. We're going to do dinner after this podcast. I know. And you're going to meet a bunch of people who you never I'm excited. So I'm excited about that. version of throwing you into it. Jennifer, <laughs> you know, one of the things I've gotten clear on is that uh, as the podcast is now coming up to about 100 weeks that we've been doing it, wow. and we've been having a lot of fun with it, um, you're the perfect example of somebody that I want to have more podcasts with instead of always having somebody new. It's nice to have people on before that the audience really resonates yeah, with. Yeah, and continue the conversation. And continue the conversation. Yeah. So thank you for coming on this podcast sharing your knowledge and continuing Thank the conversation. With I loved community. it. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.